So the kids went to kids camp last week and they got back on Friday and they handed me the most amazing picture I have ever seen. They had, apparently they had a belly flop contest. With, <laughs> and and this, this picture, right here. Oh, I, doesn't it, it looks so, right? You get that out in front of you, going down. Now, do you have that laser pointer, Mikey? Look at this, okay, look at this kid. That kid right there. He's like, <gasps> So apparently, though, he didn't go all the way. He's like, yeah, and then he crunches. Whisked out right before the landing, so he didn't get like, full points. But that is just an awesome picture. That's going to be like the splash page of our, of our website now when you get to it. Because like, where we belly flop with a total abandon. Uh, welcome to Element. If you are new, we do stuff like this. Uh, if you are new, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables in the room. If you have a smartphone, you get an app called Uversion. Click on Live. It will bring us up by GPS in your phone. You'll get all the notes, all the verses, uh, everything that we go through. Also on the communion tables, I think the back ones are maps to my house where we're going to do the Sean Jones's party today. You should all come to Sean Jones's party today to say goodbye. We, we had these shirts special made. Uh, they, they say, we'll miss the giant ginger. It's got a guy with Sean Jones hair right here and a, and a big orange. You really can't see it because I got the mic clipped in the middle of it, a big orange guitar on it. So, And when we were doing the design, a couple of people said, oh, that's really cool. I'd like to have one because we just made them kind of for the band and, and got guys on the board and stuff like that. And so we made about 20 extra. And we're not trying to make money on them, but if you guys want one, they're 10 bucks. Mikey, Mikey has them in the back. I think all the smalls are gone. Apparently, everybody likes smalls. I'm not wearing smalls. I wear a medium. I have I have transitioned. It's it's really it's a, it's a great thing for Sean because he's going off to, to finish his engineering degree and that's wonderful. But it's bad for us because you know we're we're losing him and we really love the guy. So uh, he will actually be back on Christmas Eve. So he's yay. Okay. He does every year he kind of puts together Christmas Eve services. So he's going to be back doing that. Or at least he better be, or I will go drive down and drag him back for it. We've already made the whole, it'll be awesome. Anyway, uh, now anybody see last year, Caleb and Sean were, were on TV, they did this commercial. Okay, uh, so they did this commercial. The guy who put together that commercial, we were talking about this, and, and he said, how if I redo that, we make a gospel community spot out of it. So we redid the, almost the same kind of commercial with Sean and Caleb making a gospel community spot. So here, here it is.
Yeah, yeah. Apparently that one's not going to make it on the TV. <laughs> what are you guys selling? We don't get it. What's, what's going on with that? All right, why don't you guys stand me reading God's Word? Uh, this is 1 Corinthians 9, 22 and 23, and it says, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Let's pray. Father, this morning I do ask that we as a people would understand the great blessings you have given to us and we would share those with all of those around us so that we as an entire community of people can walk forward into the grace and abundance that you have given to us. We ask that we would live uh, for your name outside of these walls much more than we even do inside. Amen. Have a seat. So we are continuing what we started last week in the Song of Solomon. This is a fight. Uh, it is important to finish what you start. <laughs> this isn't going to go well, apparently, if I say this the wrong way. Uh, it's, and it's biblically finished what you start, so that's where we're going. Last week started with this fight between two lovers. Uh, next week we will come to the conclusion of that. Today is the beginning of the resolution. Uh, but in finding the resolution, there's a lot of stuff we must think about uh, that we reflect about in our own lives. The Song of Solomon was written 3,000 years ago, and yet it speaks so much truth to our lives today. Song of Solomon deals more with intimacy and sexual matters in a very frank way that is not crass, more so than any other book in the Scriptures. And so as we go through these things, you must remember that sex is not God, sex is not dirty, but sex is a gift. It is given to us by God to steward and enjoy, to protect in the context of marriage, to share frequently. But what typically happens is anger and resentment and fighting and frustration comes into a marriage and that wants to undermine the oneness that sexuality is supposed to bring into a marriage. When we feel sinned against or we sin against someone else and feel guilty, what do we do with that? How do we begin to put that in a context that we can get past and get over? This is why the scriptures always come back to this idea of reconciliation, reconciling with one another. Our sin has separated us from God and each other. Our great God comes in humility, lives and dies and rises from the dead so that we can be a people who live reconciliation, where we take things that are broken apart and reconcile them again. God calls us to be a people all about reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19 says, All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Now, when we talk about a lot of people call themselves Christians say, yes, we believe in reconciliation. We are to be a people who reconcile. And we seem to do this in a lot of places except in our own homes. And that is the place where you need it the most. That reconciliation needs to be offered, more importantly, in our marriages than anywhere else. Because the relationships we have with other people are going to stem out of that marital relationship that we have. And many times in counseling in my office, I'm not going to talk about any of you, so don't worry, I'm not... No. Nine times out of ten, I, I give people advice about something, and most people do not listen to anything I say. And, and I know why that is, because we are all selfish. We are selfish people. Anybody who says something to us that goes against what we want or what we think, we get rid of, because we want to do what we want to do. I mean, the issue, in, the big issue in marriage and sexuality and loving each other in marriage essentially comes down to an attitude of pride and selfishness. It's that everybody thinks we ourselves are humble, and it's the other person's problem. You know, I'm great, it's, it's all you. 
And we may not say that out loud, but that's really what happens in our hearts. In the New Testament, Paul talks to a young pastor. And he says you need to sometimes rebuke people about certain things. In Titus 2.15, he says, Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. He says this over and over. 1 Timothy 5.1, 1 Timothy 5.20, 2 Timothy 4.2, Titus 1.9, Titus 1.13. And so my rebuke for you this morning is that we must get over our selfishness if we ever hope for our relationships to last. I mean, think about this. How, if you're married and, and how you treat your spouse when you're angry, is that how you hope one day your kids will grow up and tweet, treat their spouses? Or is it how you hope they get treated themselves? You know, so if you walk around in your marriage and you are always angry and there's always something going on, do you really always think it's the other person's problem? You know, the truth of the matter is many times it's simply us. The truth of the gospel is that we're evil. We are, you and I, period. And so we must understand the gospel and reconciliation in order to ever have the marriages and the relationships that we are supposed to have. So I'm going to give you four things as we begin that I believe are very important in resolving conflict. And then one thing at the end, it's my plus one. You know, I got four plus one, that, and that's about element. So here are my, my four things. Number one, we need a servant understanding to resolve conflict. We need a servant understanding to resolve conflict. We have to learn how to be givers and not takers in a relationship. You know, in, in relationships, we're always trying to figure out how to get what we want. Well, I want this thing or I want that. And we get angry because we don't get the things that we want. We don't feel like we're being treated the way we want to be treated. And we stop praying for our spouse. We are called to be givers and pray for our spouse all the time, especially when you are angry and mad. Number two, we need to understand that no circumstance in our lives makes us an exception to what God calls us to be in Scripture. There is no circumstance in our lives that makes us an exception to what God calls us to be in Scripture. Now, a lot of people, you know, if they're, if they're living together, they're not married, they'll say things like, oh, no, the Bible says we're not supposed to live together to wait till we're married, but we're married in our hearts. We prayed about it, and God told us this was okay. We're, we're the exception. Really, if, if you, that's what you prayed and that's what you got, you dialed the wrong number, all right? <laughs> I mean, if, if, you're, if you're married and, and you think it's okay for you to, to belittle and fight and nag all the time at the other person, and you said, oh, well, God says this is okay, you dialed the wrong number, all right? That is not God telling you those things are okay. You are called to be a servant. And there, there's much truth in this. And, and it seems for people before they're married who, who like want to live the opposite of Scripture. For guys, it always ends up with a naked girlfriend. And for girls, it ends up with a rushed relationship. And in the end, it's just a big mess because we are selfish people and think we're exceptions to the rules that God has set. Number three, we have to see God, marriage, sex, and children are all connected. Like what? God and sex? Yes, connected. What does that have to do with it? Sex and marriage goes together. Marriage, kids? Like, well, really? Yes, it all goes together. They are all related issues in the scriptures. Many people want sex without any commitment, and that is not how or why God created it. Number four, we have to be a people that seek God's heart and not ask where the line is on sin. And this is whether, you're, whether it's before marriage or where you're wondering how far can I go with, with my boyfriend or girlfriend. Maybe it's after marriage, like how long can I hold a grudge? How, how bad can I make them feel before I've got to really repent about this? You know, what is it? The, the point of Scripture is not that we get a line and walk as close to the line as possible. It's that we walk, walk as close with God as possible. We need to love and honor Him. We don't, don't say, how far can I go until God busts me? We say, what brings God joy and what brings God's, God's glory? And how do I show that in my life? And here's my plus one. Number five, plus one, is for us as a church, we will not legitimize sin. 
in any way. This is why typically when you come in here, a lot of people say, I've had actually people that have come to Element and they don't really come back because they, they say that I, I'm too in your face sometimes. I'm, I just throw things out there and say, blah, and they're like, I don't like that. I'm going to go somewhere else where they're nice to me. <laughs> so, I, I, But that's true. We will never legitimize sin. I believe part of my duty is to tell you guys the truth as much as I can and as often as I can. So don't get all bent out of shape when I do because you know what I'm going to say anyway. I'm going to say, you're stupid, knock it off, You know, because I say that to me too. You know, I, I will never tell you a sin is okay to ease your guilty conscience. We as a church will hold the line on truth and clearly show you what that is because we love you. And what is that truth? It is that you and I are selfish. It is not humanity out there. It is you and me. The question is to what degree? We've got to move from selfish to service in our relationships because selfishness is a sin. We have a whole society that is built all around selfish. Everywhere you go, you pay people to do things for you. If you go, oh, I'll get a hotel and I'll pay them to clean my room. Oh, I go out to eat and I pay them to serve me. And what this has done in our minds is it's led to terrible friends and terrible lovers and terrible spouses and terrible parents and terrible Christians that all leave a terrible legacy because we think everybody's there to serve us when our God comes and tells us we are to serve others. Now, last week, what we did is we started this discussion in Song of Songs chapter 5 about the selfishness, fighting the cold shoulder, but ultimately, in the end, we want resolution. This is where it goes. This week, resolution begins with humility and remembering the reasons why this couple was married in the first place. So if you are married in here this morning, what I want you to do is I want you to think back to your wedding day. I want you to think back to your vows. I want you to think back to the reasons why you said, I do, and why you were attracted to that person and why you married the person you did. If you got in a fight before you came here today, I want you to grab your wife's or husband's hand, just, just hold their hand and think about all those good things, why you got married in the first place. The wedding day is probably the second most important day in your life. I believe the first most important day is the day you surrender yourself to Christ. The most important decision in your life is who is my God, but the second one is who am I, who am I going to spend the rest of my life with? Covenant with God, covenant with your spouse. These things will then go and determine your entire life. Biblically, marriage is seen as covenant and consummation. Covenant is where you speak vows that bind yourselves to one another. And then consummation, marital intimacy, coming together as God intends. Now, in Solomon's culture, what would happen is you would say your, your vows of covenant together, and that night you would consummate your wedding, kind of, kind of like today. But in a Jewish context, what they would do is they would get together for a week-long celebration. And it wasn't just the couple, and it wasn't just the family. It was all of the friends. Now, I, this year, in uh, April, May, and June, I had a wedding like every single weekend. And I couldn't imagine, like, I would never get any work. They'd be like, oh, I'm still partying. Bing. Oh, next wedding. Boo, got to go to the party. You know, I, I, wouldn't, I would never get any work done at all. You know, imagine calling your boss. Hey, I got to go to a wedding. Uh, I won't be there for a week. Oh, and hey, someone else getting married. And, and just crazy the way the culture said But it was all about creating these memories. And so when you thought about your wedding day, you would think back to this week and all of these memories. Because what you would do during this week-long thing is you would go to party, to party, to party, and people would pronounce blessings upon you after you got married. And so you would go into your, your marriage essentially with a community behind you to help you to go where you're supposed to go. Now, in, in this culture, in, when you invited these people over for a week of this party, it was your job to feed and house and take care of everybody for a week. I mean, I don't know. Can you imagine? I would starve myself for a week. I would show up, and I would bust your wallet. That's what I would do. I'm like, I, you know, it's like all-you-can-eat buffet. Yeah, I want to get my own zip code. You know, I'd be there, and I'd just be going to town. Elastic waste, man. Here, here I come. You know? 
And, and, and this is the whole idea. In, in this culture, you're not supposed to throw a party unless you can take care of it. As an interesting thing, in John chapter 2, when Jesus changes water into wine, it's in the context of a wedding celebration. It's towards the end of the celebration, towards the end of the week, and the wine runs out. So Jesus makes water into wine. It's really kind of cool. But, you know, it's good when God shows up and makes sure everything's taken care of. Solomon's a king. He could pay for it. But all of this stuff comes together. And what you see in the Song of Solomon, especially during this fight, is their friends come along beside them and help bring them to restoration and unity. So day one, you'd exchange vows and covenants, signifying and showing his protection of her. He is looking out for her, her safety, her honor, her well-being. I think today, for guys, this means that this would include for your wife a safe car. I think it means a safe house, a cell phone, especially for emergencies, uh, life insurance. So if something happens to you, she's taken care of. So in Song of Solomon, chapters 1 through 4, what you get it's just ideal. You get the dream, the wedding, the great love, all these wonderful things, all the memories that they start with. And then in chapter 5, you get the reality after they're married and then some anger and frustration and the fight sets in. This is, this is really the reality. One, one of the funniest things I've ever read about marriage is from a guy named Russell Dix. He is a marriage counselor in Florida. He wrote this all the way back in 1974. And this is what he said. He goes, assuming that sexual expression is irresistible, like a flood, many couples inevitably find themselves standing before a minister to be married. The minister says, do you take this woman with all of her immaturity, self-centeredness, nagging tears and tension to be your wife forever the dumb ox temporarily hypnotized by the prospect of being able to sleep every night with her mumbles i do then the preacher asks the starry-eyed bride who is all of 18 do you take this man with all of his lust and moods and indifference and immaturity and lack of discipline to be your husband forever she thinks forever means all of next week because she has never experienced one month of tediousness responsibility or denial of her wishes so she chirps i do in the thought that she has now become a woman the patient minister parrots by the authority committed unto me as a minister of christ i pronounce you man and wife and as he does he prays a silent prayer of forgiveness for he knows he lies he says, they are not now husband and wife, and he knows that few of them ever will be. Uh, they, they are now legally permitted to breed, fuss, bully, spend each other's money, and be held responsible for each other's bills. It is now legal for them to destroy each other, so long as they don't do it with a gun or a club. And the minister goes home wondering if there isn't a more honest way to earn a living. I've been to a few of those. <laughs> so open your Bible to Song of Songs, chapter 5. That's where we're at. What, what you have to understand is that Scripture is always honest. It is always honest. All throughout the scriptures, it never leaves you with the picture of a couple that lives happily ever after. We did this maid series at the end of last year, and I asked you during that series, who in the Bible would you say had the best marriage? Nobody. Nobody, all right? No one, no one. Uh, Adam and Eve, you know, they start off in paradise. They, they walk with God in the garden in the cool of the day. It's, it's a beautiful experience. And what do they do? They sin against God. We feel those effects all the way to this day. You get to a guy named Abraham. He, uh, Christians, Jews, and Muslims all trace their, God, their, their religions to this guy. Abraham is a guy. He, he lies that his wife is his sister and then impregnates her servant, Hagar. Crazy stuff. Uh, Abraham and Sarah's son, Isaac. Isaac marries a girl named Rebecca, and they have a couple kids. And they fight their entire marriage about which one of these kids is more important. One of these kids' name is Jacob. That's where the 12 tribes of Israel come out of this guy. And Jacob had children by two wives and the wives' servants. Tell me that doesn't cause problems. It causes problems, all right? You get to Moses. You get to Moses, and you don't really know a lot about his wife, Zipporah. One of the things that you do know is that at one point they have an argument over circumcision. She gets mad at Moses. She chops her son's foreskin off. She throws it at Moses. I mean, you're like, you think a plate's bad, foreskin coming at you. Like, ah! <laughs> I promise I'll vacuum, you know, whatever it takes. 
You get to King David, the greatest king in the Old Testament. He's, he's a disaster as a husband. You look at one of the most godly men in all the scriptures, a guy named Job. When Job's life gets really hard, he and his wife are having some issues. She looks at him and she goes, curse God and die. See, you know, that's a way to end arguments in your house, right? Be like, oh, really? Really? Just curse God and die. And it's like, oh, done. I guess, I guess it's done. You see, in fairy tales, life is difficult, and then you get married, and then you live happily ever after. But nowhere in the Bibles do couples get married and live happily ever after, because marriage doesn't save anyone. Only Jesus does that. No person on this earth will ever be your savior other than Jesus. Scripture is remarkably transparent about the flaws and brokenness of every single marriage and every single character. Yet so many people in churches sit for so long in silent agony thinking they are the only ones. This is one of the reasons why we push gospel communities so hard because you are not the only one. You'll get in a group of other people who are just as messed up as you are. And it's amazing. Uh, in my GC a couple weeks ago, we, the, this lady was there with her daughter and her daughter's like getting in that place where she's mine, no, and does like gets into all kinds of stuff she shouldn't get into. And there's another couple there who has who has a couple kids, and and they're like, oh, she's like, what do I do with this? And they go, oh, well, you can borrow our daughter for a day, and then your daughter will be an angel because after you get ours for a day. And all of a sudden they started to be able to talk about how they're raising their kids and and what they were doing, and and they both felt like they were not alone. This is this is the point of the community in a marriage and gospel community that we want to do here. You are not alone. You don't have to project an image of spiritual success all the time when under the surface there's a reality that you really don't want to even talk about. There is a place to talk about it. So in Song of Songs, last week in chapter 5, we looked at how Solomon comes home. He was working late. She's an early, early riser. She goes to bed early. He gets home. He finds her door locked. She's already in bed. He knocks, but she doesn't get up to answer the door. He uses his four best lines in verse 2 of chapter 5. He says, open to me, which is open the door. My sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. So he says all of his nice lines. He's trying really hard. And she comes back with excuses of why she can't get up. In verse 3, she said, I put off my garment. Oh, I took off my robe. I couldn't really put it on to walk over to the door. She says, I had, I had bathed my feet. Oh, I washed my feet when I got into bed. I can't walk across the room to, to op- open the door for you. And so Solomon leaves. He's rejected. He is hurt. And she goes back to sleep, and she has a nightmare. And when she wakes up, she realizes the truth after this nightmare that she has hurt her husband, and she feels guilty. And so what she does in humility is she seeks out her friends to help her find her husband to take care of this. She is humble. She seeks reconciliation. She becomes a servant. So chapter 5, verse 8 is where we start today. She says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, these are her friends, if you find my beloved that you tell him I am sick with love. I, I love him so much, and now I'm sick because of what I have done. And her friends are godly friends. They ask her a harsh question. Verse 9, what is your beloved more than another beloved, O most beautiful among women? What is your beloved more than another beloved that you adjure as thus? They say, why did you reject him? Why do you come to us like this? They're not friends that go, oh, yeah, you must have had a reason. They were like, they're like, what happened? Why did you reject him? Is, is he a bad guy? And she says, no, he's actually a good guy. And what she does through the next few verses is talk about why he is a good guy. Verse 10, she says, My beloved is radiant and ready, distinguished among 10,000. She starts with, No, he's a distinguished guy. And he really didn't do anything. He tries to love me. I'm actually very attracted to him. I don't have a good answer why I rejected him or treated him the way that I did. And you see her beginning to turn from selfishness to servanthood and humility. I mean, don't, don't mistake me here. There, there are good reasons to say no sometimes. Abuse, neglect, maybe it's that time of the month. But she doesn't have any of those excuses at all. She can't even do mental gymnastics where she's like, oh, he told me no, and, and so that was so mean and unfair to him. She doesn't do any of that. 
and her friends begin to reset her perspective. And what she starts to do is think about why she loves and was attracted to him in the first place. She doesn't think about all of his flaws. She thinks about all of the good things. And so every week I give you a question if you're married to ask your spouse. Uh, I'm not going to give you a question today. What I want you to do is I want you to tell your spouse on the way home, uh, from, from Element today or maybe tonight when you have some time together, I want you to tell them why you married them in the first place. I want you to say things like, you are the most beautiful person in the world. I, I was incomplete without you. And you came in and my life has never been the same. Did, write that down. You say, you, say, you say good things like that, and, and you tell them why you married them. You don't point out the flaws. You think about the good things. Again, if you came here in a fight this morning, we're going to leave in a good mood, hopefully, by the time we're done. So, you know, so that's what she does. She thinks about why she married him in the first place. Verse 11, his head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with jewels. So he goes to the gym. He works out. Yeah, okay, whatever. His body is polished ivory, bedecked in sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. So he's, he's a big guy. He must work out. He's pretty strong. You know what he could have done at the beginning of this fight? He could have just kicked in the door, but he didn't do that. He did not do that. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet, and he is altogether desirable. She says he is a great guy. I mean, honestly, don't, don't raise your hands for this, but you know, how many of you who are married have done something stupid at some point, and you really have no idea why? You know, you're irritated. Something just came out. It's like, oh, yeah, I, all the time. I mean, I, I, am, I am just a tool all the time. She ends with this. She comes back, and she says, this is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. So she comes back to this idea. He is my friend. I married him because I love him. And you see her entire change of focus from where she started last week to where she is this week. Her friends come in, help her to res- reset her life with conviction and honesty. Now, for this couple, uh, the, the majority of their fighting has to do with their sex life at this point. They're, they're very young. They're learning to adjust. There's so many couples who get married and think, you know, Garden of Eden, right at my address. That's, that's how it's going to be. I mean, the guy thinks, you know, she'll want to do it all the time, and the girl thinks he'll want to be with me all the time, and those are different things, right? And it just kind of doesn't happen. At this point in their marriage, they maybe not have even counted the cost yet. Solomon has lots of affairs of state to take care of. They keep him out late at night. He gets home. She's usually in bed. She may even begin to feel taken advantage of. So she locks the door. This is called being passive-aggressive, where you say say or you do something, and then they get mad, and you're like, oh, I didn't really say or do anything. I have no idea why they're mad. I, I didn't do anything at all. Both men and women do this, and it doesn't just happen when you're newly married. Did you know that a statistic just came out recently that fully 75 to 80% of marriage failures are due to sexually related issues? This has nothing to do with function because they make a pill for that, right? This has to do with communication. This is communication. Do you know, you know how to get past these issues? How you deal with this and become a servant of somebody else? What you do is you don't lock the door. You don't throw things like foreskins around. You don't cuss each other out. You talk about it honestly with a servant understanding. That's where you start. I mean, when you, when you talk about what you're thinking, what you're feeling, where, where you consciously try to make it make sense to the other person. Do you know that only 7% of the message you send is with the words that you use? 35% is from your tone of voice. So you can say things like, hey, I love you, or I love you. You, know, you can say it two different ways. Uh, the remaining 58% comes through your body, your eye contact, your facial expression, the shrug of your shoulders, the rolling of your eyes. I got this guy that I talk to every once in a while, and whenever I talk to him, it's like, hmm. 
just no emotion response whatsoever. It drives me nuts. I'm like, I, I can't live this way. It's something I want to throw something. It's like, bing. Oh, I got a reaction. That's good. Something hit him in the face. I know. It, it's terrible. A, a clear message will come out of you being aware of what you're tr- trying to say, what you're thinking, what you're feeling, and able to share that. With the, and this, again, comes with the servant understanding. So what I'm going to do to uh, finish out this morning, very practical because I love you, I'm going to give you five steps to do this, five steps to communicate better. Ready? Number one is this. You take time for each other. You take time for each other. Our world is a busy place. It's just getting busier and busier. It's all too common to take time out of our schedule for so many unimportant things. Guys, I will tell you this. Your spouse is more important than the game. Ladies, your husband is more important than whatever is on sale. Most people spend more quality time during their dating and engagement relationship than they do after they are married. And many couples look back and go, well, I don't feel as close to them as I did when we were dating or when we were engaged. Well, you know what? You're not spending the same amount of time together. Spend some time together. Be like that. Like, oh, I just, seriously, my, my wife uh, working the night shift at the hospital right now. And so uh, yesterday we, we had this event, and then the day before that I was selling my other truck. And so I, I haven't been home. I haven't seen her in like two days. And I'm ready to just go crazy because I haven't seen her. And she comes home this morning, and I'm like, I just love you. <laughs> she likes it when I'm like that, too, so whatever. You set aside time for each other. Number two, speak what you mean. Speak what you mean. You don't beat around the bush. Don't think that the other person's a mind reader, because be glad they're not. Don't think they can always know what you're thinking. I got this other friend that sometimes I talk to, and if there's an issue, like this is the issue, this person, he'll just talk around it and around it and around it and never talk, and then we'll walk away, and I'm frustrated, and he's like, oh, I'm glad I got that out. And it's like, I don't even know what he was talking to me about. You've got to be clear on what the issue is. You've got to talk about it. You are responsible for communicating your thoughts and feelings to the other person. Communication gets terrible when you tell your partner what they think or or how they feel because it creates defensiveness in the other person. You don't do that. Communication comes from clearly expressing your thoughts and feelings to each other. Number three, you understand that your spouse's perception of life is different than yours, and that is okay. It's okay. I mean, my wife and I can watch the same TV show, see the same event, and we will see it two completely different ways because we're different people. Uh, in the scriptures, you have like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. For, for a long time, people are like, oh, look, there's contradictions in, in, the, in the gospel accounts. Well, there actually isn't. Like one of the things they pointed out at one point was uh, Jesus heals this blind guy going into Jericho or Jesus heals the blind guy going out of Jericho. Ah, oh, look, contradiction. Well, no, actually there are two Jerichos. One was the old Jericho, one was the new Jericho. And depending on the perspective of the writer, which one was more important to him, that's the one he talked about. Jesus healed him coming out, Jesus healed him going in. It's just difference of perspective. And that's what it is. And, and couples have different perspectives about things. You come from different families. At least you should. I mean, if you, if, if you don't, that, that's a whole other issue. If you have a family tree that's not like a tree, it's just a trunk, there's an issue with that. Different families have different ways of life. Different is not wrong or bad. Sometimes it's okay to say, well, we're going to see that differently. I mean, do you know how odd it would be if you didn't see some things differently? Communication is good when you value and take time to understand the differences and when you respect each other's views and value each other's opinions. Poor communication is usually the result of us trying to prove our own rightness. Oh, I'm right, I'm right, I'm right. You know, there there comes a place where you have to decide between right and happy, and you should choose wisely, all right? Number four, number four, listen. Listen, you know what I mean by, by listen? Listen. That's what I mean. I mean listen. You pay attention to what the other person is saying. And this is more than what, what comes out of their mouth. If 50% of communication is nonverbal, then it's important to watch for. What are they saying by everything they're doing? I mean, after a couple has been married for a while, they can usually finish each other's sentences. But sometimes that's bad because we think we know what the other person is thinking. And you don't. 
and you don't. You have to allow them to tell you what they're thinking and what they're feeling. You cannot sit there and go, I can't wait till they finally stop talking because I'm going to throw this comment back at them. Like, oh, they, like they say something. You know it doesn't mean what, what, how it came out, but you take it the wrong way just so you can throw it back at them. You don't do that. You just simply do not do that. It takes humility, again, a servant understanding and patience in this. You cannot be a selective listener. You've got to hear everything they say. And number five, you feedback what they're saying. You let them know what you heard. I try to do this with my wife sometimes when we're having an argument or discussing things vigorously. Um, we, we'll, we'll, I'll stop at some point and I go, okay, what I just heard you say to me was this. And she'll be like, that's not what I said. And I'm like, well, what did you say? I said what I said. And I'm like, yeah, you know, because... She, she's very adamant like that. But you know, she, she's great. But, you know, so I feed that back, and she gives it back. She says, okay, well, this is, this is what I meant, and then we kind of move on from there. Because what that does is it reduces mind reading. You're no longer trying to figure out what they're trying to say. You ask them. You say, this is what I heard. You can only speak for yourself. Again, mind readers think they can speak for everybody else, and they know the future of every conversation. You don't. You are not God. Stop acting like you are. Time, honesty, clarity, respect, value, love for each other. Communication is not like driving, a, driving an automatic. It's like driving a stick shift for the first time. It's like <laughs> that's, that's communication. Sometimes it's difficult and it's not pretty. But if you have a servant understanding and an idea and focus on reconciliation, then it becomes much more valuable, much more what God actually intends. Now, uh, one of the most amazing things about Song of Solomon is that you'll see next week. They do meet, they get together, they come to resolution, but it takes two chapters to get to that resolution. I mean, when he leaves the locked door and she sleeps the rest of the night, the next day, he's still got to go to work. So he sits through his entire next day with this pit in his stomach just thinking, man, you know, I, 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 I'm irritated, I'm frustrated, I cannot believe what's going on with me and my wife right now. Don't raise your hands, but Right? Yeah? Okay. We're, we, we, we've all been there. You know, he has to take care of affairs of state and, and do his job. When they actually do get together next week, she's like, I'm looking for you. I love you. I'm sorry. And he doesn't go like, well, you did this. I want you to hear how mad I was. What he does is he takes that, and then he starts to speak words of love and affirmation back to her. He doesn't hold on to the bitterness. He lets it go. He lets it go. And the question really for us in this is, are we going to be servants or are we going to be selfish? That's the question. If you want to be like God, Ephesians 5.1 says, Be imitators of God as beloved children. Well, what did God come like? As a servant. That's how he came. Mark 9.35, it says, And he sat down, that's Jesus, and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last and servant of all. You know, that includes your spouse. Servant of all. What I think is really amazing about the communication things is that God communicates with us in, in in a very humble way. He comes in the form of Christ, lives, dies, rises from the dead, sends his spirit into our lives to lead and guide us. I mean, the church is called the bride of Christ. And how does he speak to us? He does all of these things. I mean, the first one, he takes time for us. He creates and he holds the entire universe together, and yet he takes time for us. In that second thing, God speaks what he means. He is not vague. He is very plain. We are the ones who try and make it vague. We're the ones like, well, did God really mean this? Because I don't like it. You know, it's, God is very plain on what he says in his scriptures. The third thing is he knows our perceptions cloud the truth. This is why he promises that his spirit will lead us into all truth. He gives us his word for this. And the fourth thing in there, but God does listen any and every time that we speak. And the fifth one in that, our God, his spirit, feeds back our perceptions versus his reality. Our God is a perfect God, perfect communicator, yet comes again as a servant to pay the penalty for our sin and our selfishness. He dies, rises from the grave three days later to offer us new life. And we are to be a people who walk 
in the ways that he calls us to walk. And if you do not, you will forever be more selfish than humble. And our God calls us to be humble people, seeking reconciliation in all of our relationships. Again, this morning, we invite you guys, if you are having a really hard time in in your relationships, there will be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you need prayer, we would love to pray with you. Uh, If you are not a Christian, uh, if you've never surrendered your life to Christ, as I tell you every week, the Song of Solomon will make no sense to you unless you have surrendered your life to Christ. And so there will be some deacons and elders in the back, and they would love to introduce you to who Christ is. Uh, The band's going to come up. Apparently, Sean Jones stuck an extra song in the song list this morning. Since this is last week, he's like, I'm going to get it all out of my system. And as they sing these songs, you are welcome to come and take communion. Communion is where you take that cracker and you break it like Christ's body that was broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice that represents his blood that was shed for you and I so that we can be a people who can come and understand that our God has sought us and reconciled us to him. And so we surrender this in this inn in a place where we no longer become selfish, where we become servants. Uh, we will worship God through giving. I, I get told I'm like a, like an airline stewardess. I'm like, there's offering boxes on the side wall on the back. So, so I'm just, they're, they're offering boxes on the side wall on the back. And, 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 we give, and we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is simply part of our worship. So every week we give you that opportunity. And there's, I don't know, is there still food in the back? Is it all gone? There's a couple cookies in the back. So who cares about that? Come to my house for Sean Jones going away party. And bring a lawn chair, bring something to drink, and a, and a dish to share with people. One o'clock, show up, grab a map, be there, and then you can have fellowship and community there. And then maybe you can walk around and ask people, hey, are you in a gospel community? I'm not. I would like to be. And they'd be, hey, come to mine. It'd just be awesome. Because honestly, God comes and gives us the spirit and the strength that we are intended to do life together. And in doing life together, these things will be much more readily come into focus in our lives. Uh, let's pray. Father, this morning. I do ask that you, as our great God, would teach us the trueness and the reality of being humble, of what it means to truly be a servant, to have an understanding that you, as our God, came as a man to seek and save and redeem a lost people so that we can be those who have perfect relationship with you our lives that have been split from you can now be reconciled again. Father, so often in the relationships in our, in our lives, we, we hold on to petty things. And those petty things just fester and want to destroy all those relationships. And this morning I ask that your spirit would come and begin to root out those things so that we could be those who more rightly reflect your goodness and your grace who live honest lives before you understanding the extravagance of your love that has been given to us and that we in turn would then give to those around us for your great glory and your great honor because God we know there is nothing righteous in ourselves that causes you to love us. It is your choice that you love us and call us and take us home. So have all of us be imitators of you as our great God that we would choose to love those around us as well and live in the ways that your spirit calls us to live. Thank you for being a great, 
great God who teaches your people in such practical ways how to love each other and to love you. And we ask that we would be those who truly love each other.